Hey there, GPSers, and welcome back to another edition of the GPS Podcast. I'm really glad that you are here, and I hope that you're doing well wherever and whenever you are. As you are well aware, we're in a very strange season, and it's been a very strange year, and this podcast has hopefully been a way for you to stay connected to our church and our class in some way, and I hope it has provided some hope and some encouragement and some challenge and has been formative to your faith in some way. And as we are wrapping up this year of the podcast, we are finishing with an Advent series. Advent is a season in the Christian calendar that begins the Christian calendar and focuses on the arrival of Jesus. But it's those weeks leading up to Christmas Day that are so very important to the calendar because they focus on waiting. They remind us that the story of Jesus begins with men and women waiting expectantly for the coming Messiah. And we can learn from them and their waiting about what it means for us in our day and time to be people who wait for the second coming of the Messiah. And so over the last several weeks, we've looked at the Christmas story through the eyes of different characters, Mary, the shepherds, John the Baptist. And this week, I want us to look at this story of the birth of Jesus through the lens and from the perspective of the Magi, the wise men that we read about in Matthew's gospel. And so today, we're going to be reflecting on a passage in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising, and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out there ahead of them, and followed the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. 
Dear God, thank you so much for this season in which we find ourselves, where we are remembering the birth of Jesus and the transformation that that event has brought to all of us, the entire world. Today, as we reflect on this text, I pray that you would give me the gift of preaching and teaching and that you would give us all the gift of open hearts, that we would hear your voice and be transformed by it more into the image of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. One of my favorite Christmas gift traditions every year is receiving Christmas cards. Each year, I look forward to seeing an assortment of cards from friends and family arrive in our mailbox, ranging from the well-posed picture by the fireplace to the not-so-polished picture of children screaming for their lives in Santa's lap. Not your children, someone else's children. And if you're like me, over the last few weeks, you've probably collected quite an assortment of these cards. Interestingly, this Christmas card tradition goes back several hundred years. In fact, it was in 1843 that the first ever commercially produced Christmas card was made. That year, an English nobleman had over 2,000 cards printed and sold to the general public. And ever since then, people have been following that tradition of sending cards to those they love. That's really what the gift of Christmas cards are all about, or or just gifts in general. They're about connecting with the ones you love. You give gifts when there's a relational connection. The ideal for any gift is that you are acknowledging and honoring the relationship with another. Now, the reason I say ideal is because of a study I read about recently that piqued my curiosity and began to make me consider the notion of gift-giving in a not-so-ideal light. In 1974, a sociologist by the name of Philip Kuntz conducted an experiment with Christmas cards. That year, he randomly selected the names and addresses of 600 strangers and wrote each of them a handwritten note wishing them a Merry Christmas. He attached a picture of his family, and he signed his name. He then sat back to wait and see what would happen. It only took five days before the slow trickle of Christmas cards from those strangers began to fill his mailbox. At first it was slow, but then the pace quickened. At one point, he was receiving up to 12 to 15 cards a day. By the end of that first year, he had received over 200 cards from complete strangers. Interestingly, Even the next year, many of those same families would again send him a Christmas card with personalized notes saying things like, we see so little of you anymore, or we miss your father. (laughs) And maybe most interestingly, 15 years after the original experiment, 
Coons still received cards from some of those original 600 strangers. Now, there's a lot of conversation we could have about all the layers of this experiment because it's really interesting. But the layer that intrigued me occurred when the author who reported this study made a lighthearted observation that stuck with me. He noted how the mailman who delivered these hundreds of cards must have felt as he delivered them. The author reported that the mailman must have thought that he was delivering cards to a celebrity or a large family because, and I quote, Kuntz appeared to have a lot of people who loved him. I repeat, Kuntz appeared to have a lot of people who loved him. Keyword appeared. The arrival of these gifts would have given the impression to a casual observer that the recipient was well-loved. But to someone on the inside, they would know. They would know that there was more going on. Someone on the inside who knew the why behind these gifts would have had a very different impression because gifts can be deceiving depending on the why behind the gift. That part of gift-giving has stayed with me as I wrestled with this text in Matthew. Because in our text today, we have the appearance of two seemingly similar stories of gift givers. But if you go below the surface, if you come on the inside of the story to the why of those gifts, then you realize that they are very different gift givers. And critical for us as the people of God today is to pay attention to that difference because it is in taking note of that difference we gain insight into what it means to be followers of Jesus in our world today. Because gifts can be deceiving even when they're given to Jesus. On the one hand, we have those first gift givers that have grown to be famous throughout our Christmas tradition and retellings of this story. We have those infamous but mysterious magi. Now, I say infamous and mysterious because while these men are well known in the story, there is just not a lot we know about them for sure. There's still a lot of mystery around them. We're not certain about their exact role as magi. We're not sure if they are priests or magicians or possess some kind of supernatural power. But due to the way their title gets used elsewhere in the New Testament, we can assume that they possess unique wisdom, hence the common wise man tradition. Because they followed a star, it's reasonable to say that they had some kind of astrology bent to what they did, but we're not sure. And we're not certain about the exact location from where they're coming either. The text says that they are from the east, but that is like saying to someone in Lebanon, Tennessee, that you are from the east. 
You could mean anything from Knoxville to New York to China. And in the same way, we're not sure if these men are from Persia or Babylon or maybe even Arabia. We're also not certain about where they get their information about this king of the Jews. They are aware of the general area where this birth was to take place, but they miss the exact place by about five miles because Bethlehem is five miles south of Jerusalem, and they go to Jerusalem, where exactly they were first introduced to this information about the king of the Jews. We're not quite sure. And we're not even sure about how many of them actually arrived to see this new king. Tradition places the number at three because of the number of gifts given. But it's much more likely that there was a large group due to the significance of this event and due to the stir that they caused when they entered into the city. So much so that King Herod summoned them to the royal court. So all that said, there is a lot of mystery surrounding these magi from the east that we just don't know. And what happens and what's often tempting for Christians when we get into these mysterious places in the text is to spend all of our time speculating and trying to connect the dots that can never be connected. And I'll admit, it, it's fun to theorize about the things that Matthew does not tell us. Even I like to explore these different possible connecting of the dots. I'm only an advocate of those things, though, as long as we pay attention to what Matthew actually does tell us. Yes, we can theorize about what he does not tell us, but we have to pay attention to what he does tell us. And we know why they came to Jerusalem in the first place. Because they say it themselves. This is what they say. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him or to pay him homage. The reason why these magi from the east come to Jerusalem is to worship the one born king of the Jews. They come to worship him. They say so themselves. The word that gets used here for worship is an important word. In the translation I read earlier, it said homage. In some other translations, it's translated worship. And it's an important word in the original language because it's a combination of two words that literally mean towards and kiss. The idea communicated with this word is to kiss towards another person. Imagine a royal court with a king and all of his subjects. And imagine that moment when a servant would come before the king and they would be instructed to kiss the ring of the king. And that moment would be one where they would bow, 
get on a knee or drop down in reverence. Because that act of kissing towards would be a moment of submission, reverence, and acknowledging who is really in charge and who is really on the throne. And as we read later in the story, directly related to the worshiping of the king was gift-giving. They give three gifts to Jesus. Worship, to kiss towards, was about bringing all of yourself and what you have to the king. Worship was an act of gift-giving, giving of yourself to the king and often bringing gifts. And that's the reason why the Magi come to Jerusalem. They come to seek Jesus in order to worship him. And if you've read the story until the very end, you would realize that they accomplish their mission. They ultimately get to worship. They ultimately get to give gifts. And they ultimately get to show reverence to who is really on the throne. And yet, and yet on the other hand, the Magi are not the only gift givers in our story this morning. They are not the only ones who want to worship Jesus. There is another gift giver in the narrative, but who proves to be a very different kind of gift giver and a very different kind of worshiper. From the beginning of this story, we are reminded that this birth happens in the time of King Herod. Matthew does not want us to forget there is another king on the scene when the baby shows up. We are not two verses into this chapter before we realize that twice Matthew has already used the word king. There is King Herod, and now there is this baby king of the Jews. And this tension of two kings ends up being the means by which we see Herod's true nature. Because as soon as he hears that magi are on the scene looking for the birth of another king, his very first reaction is fear. He's frightened, disturbed, troubled. No matter what translation you use, it's easy to see that King Herod is very bothered by the presence of another king. Because he knows... What we all know about kings and thrones, there can only be one king. And so a new king for King Herod means a threat, it means a challenge, it means a defiance of his kingdom. And so it only makes sense that he calls together chief priests and scribes to get official confirmation of what the prophecies had said about the Messiah, about the anointed king and his arrival. It only makes sense that he secretly summons the Magi to get as many details as possible on what they have seen and experienced related to this supposed king of the Jews. It only makes sense that he begins to plot a plan to take care of this challenge to his kingship. But the detail I want us to notice today is the why that he gives to the Magi. 
He says this, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. So that I too may go and worship him. King Herod uses the exact same word the Magi use when they describe why they come to find the king. King Herod says he wants to go see the king of the Jews so that he can go and worship him. King Herod says he wants to go and show him reverence to offer him gifts. And everyone who hears this story says, yeah, right. We all know what's really going on here. King Herod is using the Magi as pawns in a secret scheme just so that he can get his hands on this baby king. King Herod is trying to manipulate and control the situation to keep himself on the throne. King Herod is only caring about his agenda, his kingdom, and staying in power. And what's most surprising and disturbing is the way he's trying to get the plan done. He is using the false front of worship and gift-giving as a way to get his own way. He is using the false front of reverence and honor as a way to keep himself on the throne. He is using the false front of gifts simply as a way to give himself the gift of keeping power. King Herod was trying to give the appearance of being a devout gift giver to Jesus. And a casual observer would have concluded that he did that, that he revered the baby Jesus, and that he loved this new king on the surface. But but to someone on the inside, someone with insight into the why behind the gift, they would have known there's a lot more going on with why he wanted to give gifts to Jesus. Because gifts can be deceiving depending on the why of the gift. And it turns out Herod is a very different kind of gift giver. And that is the difference we need to pay attention to in our text today. Because what we have is the appearance of two gift givers two worshipers, but they could not be more different. And the reason why I want to see that difference and I want us to see that difference today is because it's in paying attention to that difference we are forced to consider the kind of worshiper, the kind of gift giver, and the kind of posture we are going to have towards the entrance of King Jesus into the world. On the one hand, you have the appearance of a gift-giving and worshiping Herod. You have someone here who appears to be devout and full of worship. You have someone who wants to present as though their gifts to the king are sincere and selfless. Yet behind the scenes, 
below the surface, in the deeper layers of his heart, there is no one else he wants on the throne but him. Worship and gift-giving to Jesus is merely a show to get his way. And this, too, is a way that we can choose to worship and give gifts to the king today. We can present as someone who is devout and full of worship. We can seem to give our gifts to the king with sincere and selfless hearts. But behind the scenes, below the surface, in the deep places of our heart, there can be a lot more going on and we really have no interest but keeping ourselves on the throne. Worship and gift-giving can be deceiving depending on the why behind the gift. But on the other hand, you have those gift-giving and worshiping magi. These outsiders are drawn to Jesus by their openness to God. And when they meet the baby king, they respond with joy, kneeling, worship, giving gifts. And they offer the best gifts to this king, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They give these gifts with no strings attached, but a simple, humble acknowledgement of who they believe to be on the throne. And this openness and obedience to God continues to the very end as they're warned in a dream not to return to Herod. And this, too, is a way we can choose to worship and give gifts to the king. We, we can move through our lives open and responsive to the leading of God, seeking Jesus wherever we go. And when we meet Jesus, we can respond with gratitude and joy and worship. And we can give our gifts to the king and to others with no strings attached and simply acknowledge who we believe to be on the throne, getting out of the way of selfish motives. Worship and gift-giving can be authentic depending on the why behind the gift. And so, so we find ourselves in a real interesting month, in a real interesting time of the year as we're moving closer and closer to the end of one year and moving closer and closer to the beginning of the new year. We still have all of these experiences and memories of gift giving that we've been experiencing over the last month. But in another sense, we are always in the season of gift-giving to Jesus. And so the question worth considering is why are we giving our gifts to Jesus? Why are we worshiping? What is really driving our hearts and minds as we move about our lives? Are we men and women seeking to acknowledge Jesus on the throne, or is it just a show? Are we men and women giving selfless gifts, or are strings attached to our gifts? Are we men and women who will be willing to be open and obedient to God no matter what?
Because gifts can be deceiving and worshipers can be deceiving when it's only about them. And this is a text that calls us to look inside as we wrestle with being authentic worshipers. So what kind of worshiper are you going to be next year? What kind of gift giver are you going to be as you look ahead at this next season of life? It's a question that that I wish I could answer for you, but ultimately, only you know who you really believe to be on the throne. Only in our heart of hearts do we really know what is driving our worship behind the scenes. So my prayer for us is that we would become men and women who are genuine, authentic gift givers, genuine, authentic worshipers, who would walk through the world seeking Jesus, and when we find Him, we would bow down and worship in reverence. Amen.